0: We are back with another episode. We have another very special guest with us who is going to come and share his expertise and knowledge with us. April is going to read his bio and then we're going to jump right into this episode.
1: Um, I also want to preface that his bio is written in the first person. Um, So I'm going to be reading it as if I were Deshaun. Writer, researcher, student affairs pro, hustler, All these identities and more define me. My name is Deshaun, and I am a recent graduate of the Higher Education Program at Florida State University. I currently conduct qualitative research as part of my day job, but in my own time, I enjoy writing and creating innovative ways to tell stories that we often don't hear. For me, my research joys range from studying higher education environment's impact on black professionals to understanding the intersection of hip hop In academia
0: stay tuned tuned. as we jump into this episode it's a good one it is
1: a good one i'm april lovett
0: and i'm daryl lovett
1: and this is success in black and white the podcast podcast. where our mission is to bridge the gap between Between racial racial boundaries. boundaries we can't wait to share our stories tips and experiences
0: as well as hear from extraordinary guests
1: so stay tuned
0: as we jump into this episode
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Success in Black and White.
0: The podcast. We are back one more again. We are back one more again.
1: We are back and we are not alone. We have a guest.
0: Yes, yes, yes. We love it when we have guests and we have somebody that is going to come and bring some knowledge and share their expertise on our topic tonight, which you will find out shortly. Um, We're excited about this because this topic, um, I think is one that a, a lot of people, probably subconsciously like do yeah or um have done and we're gonna kind of talk about it and shed some light on it of of you know ways that you can maybe do it better
1: yeah and
0: how to continue to level up in your um equity game
1: yes i mean it is I feel like it's hiring season and it is fair game for DEI, right? (laughs) And when, and we, we are, I feel almost like I'm jumping in, but our guest today when he did his research, because he did research on this stuff and on search committees and on the hiring process and on applicants and how they feel about certain things. And this was even prior to a, what I would call, um, it's not the appropriate terminology, but a renewed quote unquote, focus on DEI. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now, we are going to jump into because I am so curious how this renewed focus kind of um, shifted your research. But before we even get into that, before we even start talking about all of these things, We want to know about you. Our audience just heard your bio, um, and I'm going to be honest because we know you well. I think it was very humble, modest bio. You have done some really cool things, and you continue to do really cool things. And so, Deshawn, please tell us a little bit about you what is your career what is your career trajectory from here how did you get to where you are i'm asking a researcher all of these double triple quadruple barreled questions right now (laughs) Um, but tell us more about you we want to know about you
2: of course of course i appreciate y'all bringing me on i appreciate being here with y'all in the wonderful intro um I think when I think more, I always, str- I feel like I struggle. They say the hardest question in any type of interview is the tell me about yourself question, um, because you don't never, you never know when to stop and when not to give too much. Uh, but I think quite simply, I think if I could sum it up, I, my name is Deshaun, I'm from middle of a. Uh, nowhere, quote unquote, in Memphis, Tennessee, where I originally grew, grew up and eventually found my way down to Florida, where I lovely connected with both of y'all. Um, and I think as I've like sat, the pandemic has given me a lot of time to sit around and reflect because I feel like that's all we can do right now. Um, and when I really think about it, I think more than anything, I'm a storyteller. Um, and so for me, whether it be through the, what I do right now through qualitative research or what I do in writing or music or anything of that nature for me, it's like how do I elevate as many voices as possible and sort of re, sort of reconstruct or redistribute voice to different narratives that we don't often hear. Um, and I think that's where my initial idea for doing my research on hiring processes and the people that we bring into our institutions, our corporate offices, and our workplaces and what that means and what does that look like, um, because it, we're we're always building something, right? We're trying to build a brand, we're trying to build a company, we're trying to build like some type of like element to bring people together. Um, But for me, it's about like, what story are we also telling alongside that and what story is being told when we don't control that narrative um, as well, because we can tell a really great story, but the story can also be told for us uh, if we don't pay close attention to the practice and the different things that we're doing. Um, So that's just a really roundabout way of just me saying I do research. I like looking at research Uh, when I'm not looking at research. I love listening to some great hip hop and podcasts like, this one so I'm happy to be sitting down with (laughs) y'all
1: tell it let's dig a little bit deeper into that because I want to know how did you get to the space where you enjoy research because I'm a researcher also that's that's what connected us um, in the first place and so I want to know you know we know your journey your schooling journey but maybe tell our audience you know where did you your undergrad and your master's and how did you determine that research was a good fit for you
2: Right, no, a very good, very good question. I think for me, I so growing up in Memphis, Tennessee and then coming from a variety of other places as well um, and being just very well-traveled because I come from a military family, I wanted to go somewhere and just like feel really steady for a while. So I ended up going six hours away to the University of Tennessee where I did my undergraduate degree in kinesiology. Um, for folks out there that don't want to use Google, it's like fancy ex- a way to say fancy exercise science. Um, and part of that reason was because I initially I wanted to be a doctor. I had a crazy dream of wanting to just go out and operate on people and get away with it and get paid to do it. Um, but that dream sort of fell through after Organic Kim, uh, because that was just not where, where I was meant to be. Um, that was just, that just wasn't the move. Uh, and I think the research bug didn't really come until later uh, my senior year, actually, where I had the opportunity to work with a good friend of mine, who actually ended up writing my letter of recommendation uh, to the master's program at Florida State. Uh, being able to work with him in an exercise lab, and pretty much what I what I did was do a lot of our recordings and uh, pretty much tested all of our equipment, made sure everything was working. And I was a part of a research project that's still actually I think going on right now, and it's supposed to wrap up in another year or so, where we were testing to see like physical activity and how it impacts kids at a young age and if constantly enrolling kids in different sports and PE programs, if it's actually beneficial for their long-term health. So, health, um, so if they are actively involved with their kids, do they maintain that sense of activity and that sort of positive endowment towards working out and exercise later on. And so that was really cool for me because for me, research was always just like, I have to sit in a room and look at data sheets all the time. And that's not really that's not really accurate. Um, and then when I got to grad school in the higher ed program at Florida State, it w- became a lot more, oh, like I can study things that I like. Oh, this is strange. Um, and for me, I knew education was a big area for me coming from a family of educators um, from both my parents who have went to historically black colleges and universities and did some educational things on the side as well as my grandmother being a teacher for most of her life. Um, And so I think learning and figuring out how people learn and sort of impact Um, based off of like whether their environments or where they come from and different things of that nature has always been something I'm really interested in. And so I had the opportunity to do research for myself. I got to work with another amazing faculty member, uh, fellow guest that y'all had on the show not too long ago, Dr. Cameron Beatty. I worked with him for a while. Um, And that for me just solidified that if I can do research that I love, which is surrounding education, especially um, if I get to study like Black folks and their impact and their understanding of higher ed and, and how we're doing justice by them and maybe not by them sometimes. I feel like I could do research forever.
1: Ooh. I love it. You
2: said research
0: forever. I'm just sitting up there. I'm looking at both of you all. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, with you. I'm with you. Y'all can have all of that.
1: I get it. Like, we can
0: have all the research. <laughs> y'all can have all of that.
1: Well, and I love that, you know, you talked, you talked a little bit before about the storytelling aspect. And for me, that's really, well, for both of us, Mm -hmm. that's really, really important because I think it's, it's often left out, you know, when, especially when you think about typical research, the way that people think about scientific research, or they think about the way that we use data to tell a story, but it's usually to influence a business decision. And therefore a lot of it is quantitative and you're just throwing like numbers and percentages, Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. I have to use that method all the time. I'm sure you do too, but there's something really special about being able to do storytelling. And when we say things Mm -hmm. like qualitative research, which is really just exploring narratives and, you know, what we can find out in the context of, of certain data um, that is not necessarily like numerical or ordinal, you know, I think that it's really important to be able to tell that story. And I think that it's really important to the research that you did in your master's thesis, um, which is, which was like the main intrigue about you. And I will tell you, when I first met you and you were working um, in the division that we were working in, and I met you and I was like, oh, this, like, this is a cool dude. Right. And then you told me about, oh, I'm honored. And the, <laughs> you told me the article, the article that you had written and what you had written about. And I was like, whoa, like, this is super important. And so that article, you know, I reference it often. I read it. I'm going to be honest with you, I read it through one time and I should read it more often and I should have gone back through and through. So we're going to have you explain a little bit about your research and what you wrote, but I, I have used it. The one time I read it, it made such an impact on me and the way that I work now when I hire and in search committees. And when I talk to other people that hire, when I'm on a search committee, I'm like, no, we can't use that term. And here's why. And this is what I (laughs) learned from the research that my friend did and published. So I'm just really proud of you, but I also really want to dig into the research that you did. So talk to us about it, tell us what it was, um, tell us what you found, and then let's, let's talk a little bit more from there about it. Cause I think it's really important.
2: Of course, I appreciate you singing my praises. It's it um, that that article in reference to it, it was it it was a long time coming in a very very long process. Um, I think as someone, even though I was used to doing research, I think something I'd never really understood is how long the publication of research process takes um but that's a whole never conversation for another day because there are many processes and different things like that that could definitely be more equitable and re- revamped um but not too long ago it feels like millennia ago because we've been it, the pandemic's been going on for five years, obviously. Um, I wrote an article called The Elephants in the Room, The Understanding and Dismantling the Black Assembly Line. And pretty much my thought process from that was came from a very simple observation. For me, it came from uh, going through a search process multiple times, being told that I was doing very well through each stage of the interview. Um, and then... Uh, was particular, I think, with us working in student affairs, like waiting and with the field now coming to this sort of juxtaposition of like, our processes are too long. And it's like, yes, we could have told you that. Um, but after so many rounds of interviews, waiting to hear back. And then I noticed that everybody else was hearing back from different positions they applied to. And I remember I personally had to reach out to the institution that I was wanting to work at. And I remember just a singular email, I actually keep it in my inbox because it reminds me a lot of my research of uh, like your, your references were great, your abilities and your ability to interview were really great, your skills are very something that our office could use, but we decided to go with someone else who seemed like a better fit for our office at the time. And so I think when I immediately felt that, I was like, whoa, that's strange, like, I, I'm used to being, like, that feeling of rejection, I think that's a natural tendency, but I think the other feelings of misunderstanding, and and just confusion, and rage, and a little bit of just, like, confusion amongst all of those things really surfaced for me, because I was just, like, what, is, like, what didn't go well, and then it was a, a big, um, sort of, like, circle of back-and-forth emails that were very vague about, well, if I didn't do as great as you thought I did, well, can I have feedback about it? It's like, well, no, we can't really give feedback. We can just say that you did well. Well, if you're saying that I did well, why didn't you hire me, right? And so that that we we fall down the loop of the, that particular trend. And so the more I started thinking about it, something kept sitting with me about the word fit, and like how we use it and use it to describe and mean multiple things, but we don't use it to actually tell us anything right it's so it's meant to be incredibly specific but vague as well and so terms like that have the ability to sort of hide in plain sight a a lot of prejudices and biases and i think that's where i i started to really jump into things um and so one of the first things i did i started to just dive in terms of like what i do as a researcher okay i'm feeling this way about this particular term and the way this is used in this experience Has anybody written about this? Has anybody talked about this? Where can I find things like that? And I did find a couple articles that sort of started me on the journey. And then I was like, kept going. I kept going, but there was not a lot of research covered on it. So the literature was in and of itself very, very minimal. And then uh, an opportunity came through and it was like, hey, like we're accepting abstracts right now. We're going to let people know if we're going to do full articles. And I was like, I don't have a word for this yet. I don't have a word for this experience, especially... Because um, it, it coincided with a lot of other ex- experiences, I was noticing specifically how a lot of Black professionals would go through the job search experience. Um, not only not only in my personal friend group, but just from my observations throughout various social media sites and people that I had like new tangentially of uh, going through search processes, not hearing back, hearing back very vague answers, or just like sort of falling into certain positions and then realizing that it wasn't exactly the way it was described and then later leaving. And then you sort of see like this revolving door, which I talk about in the article of you see black professionals or sometimes all professionals of color come into a position and then over time, they seem very defeated or they seem just very unsure about the work that they're doing. Um, They're usually tasked with a lot of different things whether it be uh, like actual physical task or emotional labor that isn't really part of the job and then you later see them leave um and that is sort of blamed on them and the way they were able to, cu- to cultivate the experience rather than the environment they, that they saw themselves in so i ended up writing the abstract i dived and did a little bit more research started to figure out that there had to exist something about this that if it's not currently written about, maybe I need to be the person to write about it. Um, And I actually get found an inspiration from a roommate of mine, um, not long after we saw the passing of, Tony Morrison, because that was one of the quotes that she was she was very adamant by, and I think it still very much resonates with me today. It was like, if there's a book that you want to read and it does not exist, it has now become your responsibility to write that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started thinking more about that and I started doing the actual research, um, more so from a theoretical um, perspective first, because uh, I didn't have anything as far as immediate test subjects. Um, and so I think the easiest thing for me, I think, was to figure out how can I make sure that this reaches critical mass in a very short amount of time and what gives this idea of legitimacy. Um, And so legitimacy, especially when we think about higher ed, it comes from what journal is it published in, like where is your research conducted, what theories are you specifically using, and it's like like clout chasing. You got to figure out what's going to give you the most clout right away so that people are going to be paying attention so that your article, like the new song on the radio, is going to get played first. Um, And so for me, I did choose an open access journal, predominantly published by graduate students, but was also very heavily reviewed by a lot of uh, practitioners as well as scholars in the field. And it was relatively well known, like you could Google it and like you would find the articles like right away. Um, And so for me, then I started on this journey of like, how do I construct this experience? And it came through um, a book that I Have read multiple times now, uh, surprisingly, but I don't actually own it. I've only read it either as a PDF or I borrowed the copy multiple times from other people um, called Debunking the Myth of Job Fit um, in Student Affairs in Higher Education. Um, And it's it's by a multitude of authors and edited, it's an edited volume. And specifically, there is a chapter by Patrice Palmer and um, Heather B. Browning. And specifically, one is a Black trans transgender individual and the other is a black woman and they both spoke on this experience of like what they call the person of color assembly line and so basically what that is is talking about how in higher education spaces they specifically were talking about a lot of faculty spaces but also a few um, staff spaces as well where space in and of itself is not conducive to the development of members and professionals of color because Majority of people that work there are white, majority of folks who are in upper administration are white, Um, so it's a lot of whiteness and whiteness is very pervasive in the space and so to sort of meet that diversity quota they hire someone who's a person of color and then uh, one thing that we know from a research standpoint is that when you have a, hire a person of color, the students of color are going to come and they're going to bring their problems about with them. And a lot of them tend to be with this, cl- this campus is not inclusive because whiteness is everywhere, uh, right? And so while that is great because it provides an area of mentorship for a person in that position, it also brings a lot of emotional labor. It brings a lot of emotional taxation. Um, and then it prevents you from being able to do quote unquote, the real work. And then while you're trying to advocate and do all of these things, you start to realize you're either your place in the space is either there for one or two reasons. You're there to give the appearance of diversity, or you are there so that you can be the expert on diversity. Um, and sometimes those things coincide with each other in that you are there to be the expert in diversity, which means we're going to ask you all the questions about diversity. that Don't expect things to be done about said diversity or you're just here to look nice and be our like diversity person, right? Um, and so for me, I started to dive a lot more into, okay, specifically how we think about this with student affairs, how we think about this in the corporate world. And that's when I started to think about from a theoretical standpoint, obviously I have to start with critical race theory because critical race theory is very inundated with the fact that we have to acknowledge that race is real, racism is ever pervasive, and there is an existence of oppression. Simply put, we have to give legitimacy to a lived experience that is very obvious. And I was like, for me, I was like, okay, so how can, what other component can I use to sort of build this idea of this cycle that's also happening specifically tailored to black professionals. And for me, that came through systems theory. And so I thought it was very telling to be able to use something that is common within sociology and various other fields of study, but also it's very prominent in business. Because I think a lot of times we like to think that certain fields are very, they're exempt from feeling all of these things, right? Um, And so by combining those two together, I sort of created what I call the black assembly line to give a name to the experiences that were happening to various folks and something that I even experienced so uh, Again, you have the space that is inundated with whiteness, you bring in professionals of color they go through and are trying to just be a professional just be where they are in their space trying to do the work that they want to do and they're tokenized they endure microaggressions and then as a result of that it brings a lot of trauma and it brings a lot of burnout as well and so very similar to the generic articles that were written about like new professionals as they enter their first stage um, and enter their first stage of their first job after graduate school you sort of reach that fork in the road of like Okay, have does this fit, right? Does this idea fit of uh, does my presence fit here? And the problem with that sort of mindset is that you, it's hard to fit somewhere where the environment was not perfectly crafted for you to be there. So a lot of times for a lot of professionals of color, you have to come into a space and then make that space your own and mold that space to conform to you. And that's very hard because it's often an ongoing process of you having to lay claim to your space and then also knowing how meritocracy and bureaucracy works in a lot of not just higher education, but a lot of large scale organizations that have multi-functioning parts, you You have to do that either with or against the system. And a lot of times those systems do not operate within your favor. And so for me, it was a really good opportunity to really sit down and think about and write about and give a lot of voice to this experience that is present, that we know exists, but didn't really previously have a name and then build it around this idea of the lack of um professionals of color and the lack of faculty of color um to match sort of everything that's going on so right right now when i sort of tailored everything based off the department of labor statistics what was very interesting that i found actually when i was doing all the research was that across every every field that we considered an industry within the, especially within the united states education included business um medicine there is job discrimination. That is inherent within a search process because we cannot actively sort of stop biases from pouring through. But what's very interesting is when you have white people on one side, everybody else on the other side, there is less discrimination, obviously, for white people. But also, there, as the years have gone by, there has been less and less discrimination for our Latinx folks. Asian folks, like multiracial folks, or um, folks that are deemed to quote-unquote fall outside of certain margins of raciality or racial composition, Um, but it's been consistent for Black people. So like discrimination going down for everybody else, but for the last 25 years, um, which is where I pulled the research from, it's been the same. In some cases, depending on industry, it's actually even gone up. So it, there, then that also begs the question of like, what specifically is it about black folks and black labor and black things and people being able to work? What does that say about that particular um, way that we're able to exist in certain spaces and different things of that nature? Because then you, once you are able to see that, you see all the other nuances that exist, right? So there are less black people in industry in certain industries. More white people in certain in a lot more of those industries. White people are statistically, I think it's like two or three times more likely to be in manager or higher upper upper administration roles. And those are the roles who are hiring statistically, you're more likely to hire people that look and share common things similar to you. And so if white people are doing all the hiring, that again creates the cycle of not many people of color, especially black folks, getting in. And so it's just like one of those things where. You don't want to believe that it's true, but once you find it, and once I was looking at everything and writing it, I was like, "Oh, this is real! <laughs> like this is this is a thing that exists, and yet no one is talking about it." Um, for and it was just crazy and strange and weird, and it made me feel all of the emotions, and I really wanted to just run, run through the streets and be like, "Have you heard? Have you heard the news? Have you heard?" Um, but it also it brought something else that I didn't expect either, which is that it's inherently tied like tied to everything else that we see, especially within the field of higher education. Right. So there, there are always much like racism in and of itself. I will let's start, I think, starting the like simplest case. Um, there are always going to be ways to justify why it exists. We know it is wrong. We've now gotten to a point where, like, we can point to something and say that is racist, and like, someone will find a justification Mm -hmm. for why it needs to exist or why it needs to be. Um, So, prime example, if we wanted to tailor it just down to our student affairs folks, and this will be like my last point. So, student affairs. It's easy to measure like the proportion of student affairs professionals in conjunction with the reason that we have a job, which is to serve students. Right. And so it's easy to see that if obviously if every institution is a predominantly white institution and excluding our historically black colleges, and universities, tribal colleges and different things of that nature. Um, it's easy to see that majority of students are white. And so therefore, if white students make a majority of student populations, there would be more white professionals. And so therefore, there is a justification. So we need more white professionals because there are more white students. Yes, but let's look at it from a proportional standpoint. Right now, I think as of 2018, there are across all universities in the US, aggregated also for, our like I said, HBCUs, tribal colleges, and different things of that nature. White students make up about 54% of, yes, 54% of all of students that attend universities. Now proportionally that would need to make sense of like, okay, so that means as far as our essay pros and our administrators, they need to also make up as far as white professionals need to make up 54%. That's not the case. Most student affairs position positions, regardless of where they are in org structure, are made up by 71% of white professionals. More so 50 51% are women, the rest are men. And then you see you start to see the breakdown after that, where again the justification piece starts to come through, right? <laughs> uh, there, I, from a student standpoint, also still looking at students, black students make up about 15%. But when you aggregate it and compare it to how many black professionals there are in the field, it can be easy to say, okay, there are also 15% of black professionals in the field. Easy justification, but let's also think about that. White students make up 54% of all institutions and black students only make up 15. And the, if you were to compare it with the overwhelming comparison of like 71% of white professionals and 50% of Black professionals, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And then even diving further with intra, like um, thinking internally about the, the Black aggregates as well, 10% of uh, Black student affairs of professionals identify as women, while only 5% identify as men. So again, there's still not an equitable distribution if we think about, okay, we can make the justification, likely more women attend college than, than men. Yes, and where, where is the disconnect there? Because again, if more women attend college than men, why do we still see the likelihood that more men actually graduate from, from under, in undergraduate degree programs and get higher paying jobs in comparison to women? So there's a lot of, like, things that I found like that, that, like, again, you can put these statistics out there, um, which is why I enjoy qualitative research. You can I can say all these numbers, and people are like, well, this reason, or this reason, or this reason. Well, okay, here's somebody's lived experience about everything that happened, and you can't just say that it's anecdotal. Like, this is why it's going on, and this is what's happening. Hmm. let me do this that was that that was really good I mean (laughs) for
0: for our listeners like the way that you broke that down and you just didn't like hit them with a a lot of data like you kind of gave them you know the story um my question to you and and um I'm kind of going to my side of it like I'm more of the like all right let's get to the meat and potatoes do you think that the way that, and I'm going to say Black people, the way that we were um, brought up, the way that we were kind of uh, educated or inspired to pursue opportunities impact us um, not really going for those those jobs or not really going for those, knowing that you talked about fit, knowing that we would be discriminated against or we may not be the right fit. Um, do you feel like it discourages us and we just kind of find You know, like you said, wherever we can get in and create that little space for us and make the adjustments and just kind of hang tight. Um, Because I I know a lot of of Black professionals and they kind of get in that mid-level and Mm -hmm. and they just kind of get stuck there and they just hang out and just ride it there. But if you have those side conversations, it's like they talk to you and they have that ambition they want to do more and be more. They're like, but I'm good right here.
1: Mm -hmm
2: right mm, that's a tough question because i think it's one of those questions where it's a yes and right <laughs> um i think a lot of the ways that I, and this is not to say that like blackness in and of itself is a mono, is monolithic experience mm-hmm. um but i think it can be easy and it is very much like okay like we are okay let me get to this let me get to this place where i know i'm gonna be comfortable i know i could get at least this job and i'll ride it out and i'm good i think the question then becomes why are we sort of pushed into those positions and having to make those choices right oh. um because i think it's very easy to be we have been socialized to be to be that way and it. In part, it is like, okay, my ambition allows me to go this far. I want to do as much as I can with this. But if you, if all you've ever seen is barriers to everyone else who has tried to do that for you or do that in that same position as you, regardless of industry, it, it stunts your ability to be able to see past the horizon, right? To know that, that, that you could make it on the other side. And if you do, that's great, but then also we have to think about this concept of essentialism, right? That um, d- Dr. Michelle uh, Alexander talks about in the New Jim Crow. Essentialism is also important because it reminds us that, for instance, if we wanted to think about President, former President Barack Obama, he succeeded where so many other people would have failed. But you also have to realize he succeeded as the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. And so in thinking about that in the same way, I think Daryl, when I think about your question, I think about that ambition and like how we are raised, it sort of does dissuade us, but it, we, you also have to then ask the question of what are the barriers and the structures that dissuade us, right? Think about how many, I think the statistic came out recently and I don't wanna say the number because I don't wanna get it wrong, but the percentage of which students, especially black students are able to graduate from high school, Think about, think about, just think about college and then pursue a college degree grow, like grows exponentially by just having one black teacher in the, at some point in their K through 12 experience. And so when you think about who's been teaching us the, these things and teaching us these barriers and putting us in these position, it can easily be like, okay, like we're not trying hard enough. No, actually we are trying hard enough in not only are we being kept from the position, but we're also being socialized that these positions are not for us. And so the question then becomes why is that and who gets to make that decision? Prime example I will give uh, with student affairs, one thing that I found that I thought was very interesting. So upper level administration, uh, when it comes to those type of positions, anywhere from associate dean and all the way up to college presidents, majority of those are filled by white men. But when you also aggregate it and look about like at the percentage of other um, folks of color who are in those positions, majority, actually eight percent of uh, folks who are in like upper level administration positions are black men. So they do, there is sort of that breaking through and that ambition comes through. But again, there's always a consequence to be paid at the end of that, right? So I think also thinking about, okay, Let me work hard enough and, okay, I'm eventually going to be this AVP, this associate dean or in these positions, but then think about what positions they usually land in, right? How many Black men do we see rise to those positions and then are immediately the chief diversity officer, they're in charge of the center for XYZ thing that is usually the most underfunded thing on campus root is usually directly connected to diversity. So then the question becomes: Okay, if I make it this far, am I only allowed to be in charge of the black stuff? Right, the black, low income, LGBT, L- Latinx. Like, am I only allowed to be in charge of these things when I know how I, I have skills that allow me to be in those other areas?
0: Yeah, <sighs> ooh, that's good. And Preach. yeah, I mean, I, I think you touched on a, a little bit of what I was what I was thinking. Um of, of how a lot of it is kind of self-inflicted to where and, and I'll speak for even from my personal experiences to where and April knows this, to where there are opportunities. And she's like, oh, like you ever thought about doing this or you ever considered this? And I would be like, yeah, I don't know if I'm qualified for that and how mm-hmm. I've assigned my qualifications based off of those barriers that have been ingrained mm-hmm. based on who I've seen in those type of mm-hmm. positions. Mm-hmm. And I start to question my own qualifications because I'm like, uh, I've seen the person that's in this position and, and some of those subliminal, I think, yeah, um, right. you know, things are, are playing into that. And I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I'm pretty sure there are other people. If, if I pull the, a group of, mm-hmm. of us together and <laughs> have a conversation, <laughs> they will probably be able to feel the same way
1: and it's important to know too I mean it's I feel like you're being humble because he will be actively recruited and he'll say well do you think I can do this and I'm like what (laughs) yes of course you can do that you've been doing things like that and it's just a it's yes also not invalidate you
0: but (laughs) also i think you touched on it though like i'm just not trying to go there and then just be the the guy that handles all of the stuff that you just said like right right. i'm like like, well i don't want to be that person that emotional piece that you were talking about um i think that's overlooked um Mm -hmm. and i feel like that that matters and and that should be explored like when you were talking about that i was like That's what somebody should do some some qualitative research (laughs) on.
1: (laughs) Your next project. (laughs)
0: That piece right
2: there. I'm writing it down right now. Let me write it down in my note cards. (laughs) That
0: that emotional piece because I feel like that gets overlooked because it fills in that little gap of as other duties assigned. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I know that.
2: I know that well. I know that well.
1: I really want to do this because, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail than the questions that we sent you, you know, as part mm-hmm. of the interview, but I think it's really important that we're talking about this from a very, um, well, really you've talked about it at a high level. You've mm-hmm. talked about it like in the weeds as well, which I think both are really important. And, you know, one of the things for me, I know reading the article was like, eye-opening to me and it almost immediately it was one of those things I was like I'm never using the term fit again and not only that if I'm in a search committee I'm thinking about the way that I'm thinking about candidates and so that kind of level of self-awareness is important Mm -hmm. to think Mm -hmm. but I'm curious like what are do you have some recommendations for people who maybe are mid- managers or senior level leaders who are in charge of hiring processes Mm -hmm. for search committees, like how do we move away from this? Because in our field, which is in higher education, which is, you know, within the student affairs realm, you know, for, for people in our audience, you understand that, but it really for anywhere, I feel like people use the term fit
2: mm-hmm. as the
1: coverall like, oh, this person just didn't fit our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's our excuse for not hiring them, but really they have all the skill sets mm-hmm. um, that everybody else would have. And so I've really tried to move away from using that term and it, it makes me bristle now when other people use that term. So what are some, what are some maybe concrete tips? Um, and maybe this is a brainstorm of all of us. I don't know. But what what sort of are <laughs> the things we can do to ensure that we move away from that level of thinking?
2: Mm, very. I think mm, that's a that's a hard that's a hard question. I have some recommendations based off of what I wrote in the article and in another piece um, that I was able to author recently as well. Um, I think it really boils down to. How are we, whether it be the search committee, whether it be the person who is the hiring manager, um, how are we going to disrupt power? And by that, I mean, how are we going to disrupt the very things that hold power that we don't think about, right? So even in the in the term fit, like when you think about a conversation, I was just like, oh, like I don't like a very good example for me. I don't think this person is a good fit. Oh, why do you think that? Um, Well, he doesn't seem like the person that I could hang out with or he doesn't seem like the person that I could like go and grab a beer with or something like that. Um, And it's just like, well, that's not what he's being asked to do. He's not being asked to go do these things with you. He's being asked to do X, Y, Z thing in this job description. And is that aligning with those things? So I think power is one of those things that I really, really hope to explore in the future specifically to this process because I think, it shows up in very, very specific ways that we feel like we can't control. So not only thinking about like words like fit, but also going back to Daryl, your earlier question and comments about qualifications. So right, qualifications is just another term for value. When we think about it that way what you what qualifies you to do it what qualifies anybody to do anything like have i had experience to do it or that i actively do it now or i am willing to learn how to do it like what what like what are those things that align with like how we're talking about these things right um and so i think like thinking about the power that comes through that and the power of discretion specifically so hiring managers and the ability to send jobs or recommend someone to a job and just like say like oh just turn in like give me your resume or anything like that i'll make sure you get at least a first round interview right Things like that where people are able to use their discretion in a specific way to help someone. And don't get me wrong, that's not bad. Like, especially when I think about like black folks and like those of us with a little bit more melanin, I like those opportunities because it, it puts us in the door when we would not have had the opportunity otherwise. But I think when it goes unchecked and we don't think about it, then we run into the issue of like how are we then making this space a lot more dangerous or assimilated than we think it is. Um, And then I think it also comes through the actual structure of uh, search committees as well, right? So in thinking about that, how are, who's on your search committee? How are people trained before they get onto their search committee? Do you address any, or have any conversation about implicit bias in that search committee? And then thinking about the positions of the folks who are on that committee as well. If the, if the committee chair is someone who is an upper level administrator, an AVP or a director of some department and my office has a good relationship with that department, how do I jeopardize that relationship or how is that going to be impacted when I speak my truth or speak my voice about trying to advocate for a candidate and is that going to re- reflect poorly on me? And a lot of people are perfectly fine making those choices in the decision because I think again, it goes back to discretion and it goes back to like, how are you able to speak power the truth? But I think those are very, very real things that sort of show up in in that space as well. And so how our search committee is going to, in the future and now, start to think more actively about those things and how are we going to tackle those things? And then another thing that I remember having a conversation with someone who was very interested in my article, um, we went back and forth about it for a while, Um, the idea of just having someone who is an expert in hiring processes or an expert in diversity and inclusion be a part of the committee, that actually does not make it better. All you have done is created emotional labor for someone to take on and that then they have to be the sole spokesperson. That's not helpful because everyone needs to understand and, and realize that they are bringing biases, right? It doesn't help to bring the diversity, the director of diversity and inclusion into the search committee and give an opinion and give it a recommendation. If the hiring manager is the AVP and then the search committee, the person in charge of the search committee is another AVP and they're friends, they work together, or they really like one of the candidates or their fan- the candidate is someone that they are friends with. Again, discretion, right? You can't put, it again goes back to some of the earlier thought of like, you can't put a lone person in a position. Oftentimes people put in those positions are typically women of color, um, put those people in those positions because all you're doing is creating emotional labor for them to then be the one that has to speak out mm-hmm. for, okay, are we thinking about it in this perspective? Are we thinking about it in this way? And how are we going to do it? And then what when they're not listened to, all you've done is invalidate someone's experience in terms of being able to advocate to have more diverse people in the candidate pool and different things like that. And I think the last thing would just be having to understand that equity is not a singular process. It is a process of multiple things, right? So it's the use of discretion of a hiring manager or the HR person to be able to be like, I don't like that this candidate pool is not as diverse as I would like it to be. Let's keep this application out for a lot longer, or let's, how are we sending out this notification of an application or of this opening? How are we recommending people? How are we bringing people into the fold? And then being able to say, okay, now that we have a diverse enough pool, how are we making sure that just because we have folks of color in the pool, how are we making sure that a lot of them are actually getting to an interview? If they have the qualifications, if they have a quote unquote, like, all of these things that we're looking for on a tangible application, like how are we making sure that they get a, a chance to speak their truth in front of a search committee and being able to be advocated for it in the same way that everybody else is? Because I think there's also this illusion that's created that hiring pools or candidate pools are actually not diverse, and that's actually not the case. Most of them actually are really diverse, but that doesn't mean anything if your folks of color or your folks with marginalized identities aren't getting the opportunity to speak and like be interviewed mm-hmm. um that actually hurts their chances a lot more because then they either are floating around and don't know the status of the the search process or they never even got a chance mm-hmm. and so it, it it goes back to again of like equity has to be constantly checked and constantly affirmed and making sure all these things are taking place. And at the center of all of that, you got to want to do it. Like it's, I think when I think about legitimacy issue, I not only think about search processes and the, the small scale actions that we do to create equity. I think about the large scale environment of the U S right now, specifically of like, we have a legitimacy issue of being able to acknowledge that we have done wrongs and it, Now we need to implement a hard process to change things, and change is hard. And so we would rather do the simple thing. And uh, I could point out a lot of things, whether it be like let me let me just rename this college, or let me just rename X (laughs) Y Z thing, or let me just buy some art by like um, a black activist, and you know, like we could. Um, But is that the real work? And are we willing to engage in the real work?
0: oh man you said a couple of things i was just like and 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 i can tell you this when you said um the comment about bringing in the diversity equity person to serve on the committee um you know i've been in that role before and like you said it, it is a very emotional um position to be in for a couple of different reasons one um because you're always going to be like, I'm going to put my air quotes up, the devil's advocate. Like, I I always felt like I was that person. Um, And and that's the emotional piece. And when you're talking about the relationships across departments, across program areas, um, it's like you kind of put that little asterisk by, you know, by you as a person. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just like, you don't want to do that. Also, I've been in a position to where um, I was a part of the selection committee and there were multiple black people that were finalists. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, uh, they like, what if I say like, let's hire another black person? Like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's a lot of stress. That's, that's for, for for me or a person of color, like that's anxiety because then, you know, other people may perceive that as a part of your biases. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you them just because you're black and they're black, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, um, it's so much. I'm going to speak for myself. I'm not speak for anybody else, for myself when I'm serving on a, a, a committee and it comes down to, to where I have, I, I'm consciously thinking through all those things. I'm like, okay, I got to make sure that, you know, my feedback is thought through thoroughly. I've taken all of my comments and I've taken all of my ratings and, and it reflects to what we're asking this person to come in to do. And I'm, presenting that in that manner when i'm explaining to everyone why i am you know for sometimes going out on a limb for a certain person that has been you know right to the bottom of the pile um so whew, when you talked about emotion i was like oh i've been in that position i was just like yeah. it's it's tiring
2: it's like oh like oh
0: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> That was a, a, a lot of, of great feedback, I mm-hmm. think, and, and I really like what you said, how you started off about um, being a disruptor, and I feel like one of the ways which you said so, um, like, perfectly is initiating those, like, um, you said, I think you said trainings, or like, mm-hmm. like before, yeah. You go you go into it. So I was like, "Hey, let's talk about this. Let's put some things out on the table. This is going to be our approach. This is going to be our game plan um prior to going in when everything starts to filter through and come out and then you're just kind of like, "What you talking about, Willis?" <laughs> <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> no yeah I, I agree I've definitely been seen and been on search committees and then there's a, I was just like I wonder how they like pick people and it's just like oh no like we just we just send an email whoever responded like they just gonna be on the committee and I was like okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> great approach
0: that's not be that, oh, that's not me sometimes though and, and I think it's for uh, those reasons that you're dressed it's it's like someone knows someone or they're looking yeah. for Uh, someone that they know that they can talk to or persuade to push someone through Um, you know it's all of the behind the scenes stuff Um, but now before I get on like I'll ask I served on a committee um, and I asked before like it's day one I said is there someone that you already have in mind that's going to be a part of this process because if it is I'm good like y'all might just want to find somebody else and people don't Mm. like that when I say that and they kind of look at me funny and you know they give the PC answer no this is an open search we were looking for the best qualified person but as soon as I sense it or I feel it like I'm like here let me tell you this because this is the way it seemed like it's going and you know but that's probably why I don't get asked they didn't (laughs) didn't probably start (laughs) my name around like they're like
2: let's let's put them in that pile that other pile (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's that disrupting that you're talking about though mm-hmm. you know and, and some people yeah. aren't comfortable or you know are not comfortable doing that I'm comfortable with doing that um I'm not one of those people that feel like I have to like be involved in that. like there's some people's like I gotta be on these committees I gotta be honest I'm like no nah, I'm good like I- I'll make my name somewhere else
1: but it's also up to white people who if you really like think that you're an ally. Okay, first, I don't think that white people can name themselves as allies. So let's get that straight. But if you are trying to be an ally and you are you are in that position, you can't leave it up to the people of color or the marginalized people on that committee to be the ones to speak up. Like, that's not mm-hmm. okay. That's not okay. Like, you have to be the one to say, like, this is not going well. Or we need to reconsider and here's why. Or let's use different language you know and some of it is just leading by example i know um i think in the, le- in the last not in the two searches ago that was part of um you know one of the things i said i came right out and i said and i said i have been guilty in the past of using the term fit to describe why i think a candidate should be here without having any additional qualifiers And I'm putting that on the table right now so we can all avoid that because I don't want to be that person again. And I think it just makes a difference because Mm -hmm. then you're not calling somebody out for saying it, but you also might just put a kibosh to it right up front. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's, but I mean, I always, I always blame myself for things that I'm like, well, I think other people could fall into this trap. So I'm going to come out and say, like, this, these are mistakes I've made in the past. Let's, as a group, not make them together. You know, it's, right. it's just easier. It takes the ownness off of somebody else when there is a power differential differential and the power dynamic always lies with somebody who is, who falls in the quote unquote normative. So white, hetero, cisgender, you know? And so if you're aware of it, like take on that power by yourself and don't force it on anybody else who does not fall in the "quote unquote" normal.
2: Right. One one of the quotes that I feel like I've loved that sort of resurfaced um, this year is that um, I don't need any more allies. I need some co- co-conspirators because um, I think that's so uh-huh. powerful, right? Because it's just like we we love uh, we and I think mainstream media now really loves this idea of like allyship, like. Um, I remember someone, we have like a diversity and equity, like thing going on at the institution that I'm currently at. And somebody mentioned an article and I actually went, meant to go back and find it. And it's like, when black people die, white people read. And so that's what we saw this summer. And like, continuously now of like oh I like I'm trying to read all these things and like make sure that I'm an ally and make sure that like I can like when the when my calling is right the black person's going to point at me and be like you I need you as the ally and it's like that's not how it works right I need you to leverage the power that you have whatever minimal it may be and be my co-conspirator and that doesn't mean like you show up when the fighting is going on I need you to show up when we're still planning when we're still trying to figure out how to execute when we're still trying to figure out these other things and so I think that's something that I've like started to live by a little bit more of like I feel like I'm good on my allies allies have showed up pretty consistently in the same way I'm 25 and I've been black all my whole life they didn't showed up the same way the whole time let me let me try this co-conspirator thing and see and see if that that shows up a little bit different
1: <laughs> I love that yeah like
0: there. I know that's uh, when I'm out there disrupting like I don't need your support me I need you in the mix with me disrupting yeah. too
2: right
0: <laughs> <I ain't. laughs> <laughs> come on, so I got you I'm an ally I'm supporting you no I need you in here mixing it up too yeah Oh, man. Well, this has been good. This has
1: been so good.
0: You, I I mean. We have so many other things we could talk about. (laughs)
1: But for the sake of time and for the sake of, I don't even want to water this down. Because it's just been so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I'm already in my head thinking of like all the people that I just learned so much tonight. And I want to send it to other people to learn from. So I don't want to water this down anymore. We're going to have to have you back because there are so many other ways. I would
2: gladly come back. I would gladly come back. We
1: can bring you in and talk to you about things in your (laughs) own life um, and just other things that you're doing. So,
0: yeah. So this is what we'll do. We will um, drop where they can find the article at Mm -hmm. in our show notes. Um, and then we want to give you space to tell people if you want people to find you where they can find you, how they can reach you, how they can contact you. We want to give you a chance to do that.
2: Of course. Um, so people can find me. I am Deshawn Dilworth at Facebook. I'm not going to lie. I'm not really as active on Facebook as I used to be. Um, you can same thing with Twitter, uh, Instagram. If you want to give me a follow, usually I post something funny um, at, at Dasani underscore Dill. And uh, right now, I'm actually in the process of launching my own podcast. So if you want to give those pages a follow as well. Yes, April. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, you can find them both. One on Instagram at Maskoff uh, twenty one, and then the other at Maskoff thirty one on Twitter. So feel free to give me a follow if you want to have more of these conversations and see me sitting down. And hopefully, I can I can bring these two on my podcast and we can see how it goes. Yes, <laughs> definitely
1: take like thirty seconds and give us a what is your podcast going to be about so people can go listen.
2: Yes, yes. All right, so the first episode has already dropped. I was just promoting it earlier today, Um, but my podcast is called Mask Off, and it's the opportunity for me to sit down with other Black men and a few other Black women and a few Black queer and trans folks to sort of discuss, like, what does it mean to live in Black culture right now today and how has a lot of that sort of shaped by Black maleness and Black masculinity and how do we go about unpacking that so that we can build stronger Black men in a stronger sense of like black culture going forward for the future that's good yeah <laughs> everybody
0: go follow
1: go,
2: go follow listen. go
0: listen go support
2: mm-hmm.
0: all right well that's all for tonight that's all for tonight until the next time bye peace
1: thanks for joining us for this episode of success in black and white the podcast the podcast music engineered and produced by dj vance
0: remember you can join our email list at successinblackandwhite.com for more ways on how you can help bridge the gap between racial boundaries. I'm April. And I'm Daryl. We're
1: We're out. out.